0: Here we are, you've come to the right place, The Rapture and Post-Millennialism Explained. I've got Pastor Jeff Durbin with Apologia Church and Apologia Radio, coming on the show. If you're new to our channel, my name is Pastor Joel Webbin. I'm the host of Right Response Ministries. This episode of Theology Applied is dealing with eschatology, the doctrine of end times. Particularly, we're taking the position of hopeful eschatology. Now, every eschatological viewpoint believes that Christ wins in the end, that ultimately Christ is the victor. The difference though, is how does Jesus win? Does he win despite a barely hanging on church or does Jesus win gradually and progressively through an increasing building growing church? That's the hopeful eschatology, the postmillennial outlook, like a mustard seed gradually growing into a large tree, like a little bit of leaven gradually working through the whole lump of dough. So we're going to talk about postmillennialism, talk about eschatology, and talk a little bit about the rapture. Is that even a thing? What does the Bible actually say about the rapture? All this and more in one of my all-time favorite episodes, a rerun albeit but a favorite episode of Theology Applied with my special guest, Jeff Durbin. Let's tune in now, but quick, real quick, a word from our sponsors. There are very few things as important as fellowship. Taking the time to spread the gospel is our duty as Christians, but sharing the word over a warm cup of Squirrely Joe's coffee, now that is our passion. Like the caffeine coursing through their veins, Squirrely Joe's is energized by their calling and emboldened to model their relentless faith. Based in Olney, Illinois, their association with the endangered white squirrel isn't just a novelty. It's a reminder that His Majesty can appear in the most unexpected places, in a humble squirrel, through a chance conversation, and even in a simple cup of Joe. Share coffee, serve humbly, live faithfully. Squirrely Joes is owned and operated by Joe Morris, his wife, Rachel, and their seven children. They believe in being a truly Christian business where Christ is in the DNA of the business. Joe also believes in living Coram Deo, that means before the face of God, in every aspect of life. Joe is also a pastor of a small reformed church, and both Joe and Rachel are veterans of the U.S. Marine Corps and U.S. Army, respectively. They believe that Christians should be building a thoroughly Christian economy by doing business with other like-minded Christians. The coffee is also fantastic. So, don't delay. Visit squirrelyjoes.com to order your coffee today. Again, That's squirrelyjoes.com to order your coffee today. With the banking industry in another tailspin and the Fed ready to raise interest rates once again, many of you are probably asking, when does this madness stop? If you're interested in learning how to establish a family banking system outside of today's mainstream banking insanity, then schedule a call with our sponsors at Private Family Banking. There's a way for individuals, families, and businesses to put their hard-earned money to work continuously accruing compounding interest and then have those resources available as collateral for cash or for financing investments, businesses, college, and other major life expenditures without having to go to the big banks for loans. Income tax protected, safety from stock market losses, Guaranteed rates of compounding interest and the ability to store up an inheritance for your children's children and avoid the death tax on your estate. If this interests you, then email our friends at banking at privatefamilybanking.com. Again, that's banking at privatefamilybanking.com. Or you can give them a call at 830-339-9472. Again, that's 830-339-9472. Schedule your appointment today.
1: Applying God's Word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied.
0: All right, welcome to another episode of Theology Applied. I'm Pastor Joel with Right Response Ministries. Today we're welcoming back a returning guest, Pastor Jeff Durbin with Apologia Church, also Apologia Studios and radio and all things Apologia. He is an apologist uh, making a defense for the faith once and for all entrusted to the saints. Um, He's committed to presuppositional apologetics and so he's going to ultimately place uh, the credibility, the foundation, the proof for everything on the word of God not defending God's word through uh, pseudo greater authority, such as logic, uh, but rather saying that we have logic because we have God's word, because God's word is true. And so uh, I'm grateful for his ministry. Uh, His apologetic ministry has been a blessing to me. Um, The fact that he's teamed up with James White now is just not really fair uh, to every other church in the world. So those two guys together is awesome. Uh, So without further ado, Jeff, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, brother. It's always a pleasure.
0: Cool. All right. So the thing that uh, people seem to take away the most from our last episode, we talked about, uh, well, we talked about a serrated edge in preaching. We talked about satire. We talked about sarcasm. We talked about a sharp language in the pulpit um, for not things that are tertiary, things off to the side uh, where there could be reasonable uh, disagreement among Christians, but for things that are um, ultimately uh, destroying the church, uh, false gospels, especially those false gospels that are, being welcomed seemingly by uh, many evangelical leaders. And so we talked about why you use sharp language, uh, especially addressing critical race theory, social justice, uh, which you and I both would attest is another gospel and Mm. not just a mere distraction to the Christian faith, um, but a false doctrine, a false gospel that's leading many astray. So we did that. Then we got to post-millennialism. We talked a little bit also about theonomy, God's law versus autonomy, man's law. and um, But the thing that our listeners seem to be most interested in was the post-mill persuasion. So I was hoping that we could spend um, this entire episode talking about post-millennialism. And so I just want to jump right in by asking you, uh, could you give us just a big picture, 30,000 foot view of the three main, you know, the main positions that we have within eschatology, pre-millennialism, all-millennialism, and post-millennialism. Could you give us a definition of each of those?
1: Sure, yeah, and I'll start by saying that it is, I think, rather unfortunate when we have this conversation that these major perspectives amongst Orthodox Christians throughout Christian history are dwindled down to sort of a single place in the most symbolic book of the entire Bible. Uh, the, book, uh, the book of Revelation, uh, written by the Apostle John, uh, I, would, I would argue, before the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, before the fall of Jerusalem, uh, the book itself is, uh, could, by modern standards, uh, be accused of plagiarism because uh, over 400 verses in the book of Revelation, over half of those versions, ver, uh, verses are direct allusions to passages in the Old Testament or, or quotations from the Old Testament. So it's a highly uh, symbolic book. You've got uh, whores drinking blood, uh, riding seven-headed, ten-horned beasts. You've got uh, manhoppers, uh, locusts with men's faces, You've got things crawling out of the sea and all all kinds of of things. A lot of of, uh, number symbolism from Scripture. So the book is uh, admittedly very, very deep and uh, difficult in many ways. If you don't understand the Old Testament, you don't have any business trying to mess with the book of Revelation. Uh, You have to understand that Old Testament context and what John is framing there. But it is unfortunate that um, we we stick these eschatological discussions and disagreements uh, disagreements amongst uh, solid brothers and sisters in Christ uh, into that passage of what do you do with the millennium um, this hmm. thousand year time period in the book of Revelation uh, you know you're you're placing sort of the whole eschatological scheme into that the most highly symbolic book in the entire Bible uh, in a single place that that mentions that the millennium. And so you have the three primary or main um, uh, perspectives. You have premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism in reference to where you have Christ and his return. And there's different ways to look at that as well in relation to this millennial reign of Messiah in the most highly symbolic book in the entire Bible. And then, of course, there's, there's differences or degrees within each of those different camps as well. Uh, you've got uh, historic or classical premillennialism, and you've also got uh, dispensational premillennialism, a perspective that didn't exist within the entire history of the church until the 19th century. Uh, In other words, never came to the mind of a Christian before then. Uh, But you do have some historic examples of premillennial thought within uh, Christian orthodoxy, Uh, good solid Christians that have held to that. You also have the amillennial perspective and the postmillennial perspective, which until rather uh, recently in church history, didn't uh, didn't have such a sharp divide. wasn't seen as this um, as as the two different camps that it is today. And there's reasons for that because there's been a lot of different working out of some de- of the details, so that it it sort of requires a different classification. So amillennialism millennialism uh, is unfortunate because amillennialists do believe in a millennium, and so a uh, is the negation of uh, uh, like you have atheist, and so that's a without theist or God. Uh, millennialism is no millennium millennium technically, but millennial brothers do believe in a millennium, Uh, but they believe that Christ is reigning now in that promised Davidic uh, kingdom, the messianic kingdom, uh, so that reign is real, and they do believe that there is a millennium. Uh, They would just say it's more of a spiritual reign, and that's why if you talk to a postmillennialist and an millennialist for about two minutes, you wouldn't be able to figure out the difference in about a two minute conversation because they'd be saying the same things related to Christ and his reign. He's ruling and reigning now. The messianic kingdom has arrived. It's not finished yet. It is ongoing in history, Um, but you would have amillennial and postmillennial. And in other words, Christ's return is after this millennial uh, kingdom in the book of Revelation. Again, one spot, highly symbolic book. And so it is unfortunate because there are actually bigger issues uh, to discuss regarding this whole entire issue. More uh, important than uh, this spot in the book of Revelation, the most highly symbolic book in the Bible, uh, in terms of how you view the kingdom of Christ and how that impacts the world, the authority of Christ over heaven and earth, um, you know, Christ on His throne now, all of that. Uh, but that's the basic division of those different perspectives. All Orthodox, all within the frame. Work of or- Christian historic orthodoxy, uh, but on millennialism again, post millennialism. Uh, what's really important is is the unity amongst brothers and sisters who hold to those perspectives on some of the essential parts, and 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 this is this is where you would this is what you get uh, in terms of that essential unity. Um, it's clear in the New Testament record that. They anticipated the Messianic kingdom. They got that from the Old Testament. It is just filled with promises of this coming Messianic kingdom. And um, I mean, it did so many just amazing, vivid details in the Old Testament. So they were anticipating, they were ready for it. So John the Baptist comes in, in the gospel, according to Matthew, in Matthew chapter three. And the first thing he says is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's important for us. I always mention this uh, because of uh, language and how language is used today. When we think about heaven today as Christians, we think about that place out there, um, that spiritual place out there. But kingdom of heaven is synonymous with kingdom of God, and it means the rule of God. Um, so the rule of God, the rule of heaven, God, uh, is, is uh, at hand. That's what John the Baptist is saying after the temptation or trial of Jesus in the wilderness. The first thing Jesus is doing when he comes out of the wilderness um, is he is saying the same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's proclaiming, this is very important, the gospel of the kingdom. Kingdom is everything in, in the Bible, uh, because everything related to salvation, what God is going to do in the world, is interconnected with the rule of God in history, what God's going uh, to do um, to, to bring redemption, salvation, and to uh, heal the world as far as the curse is found. And so kingdom is is so central to everything that the Bible talks about in terms of what God's doing with Christ in the world. And so you see the New Testament record, even how we have the order of books today, and the gospel according to Matthew really starts with that theme. Kingdom is all throughout the gospel according to Matthew. It's all throughout, of course, the other gospels. The themes are all there. The direct words are there. And then, and this is important, in Romans, which is the systematic explanation of the gospel from the apostle Paul in in chapter one and sixteen, in the in the beginning and the end of that amazing work from the inspired apostle, he actually bookends uh, that amazing work with the declaration that the point is, the purpose is, the goal is to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations uh, for the sake of his name. And so, this again is is expected. It's what was it's what was promised that. The nations were going to come to God. The nations were going to come up to God's mountain and that Shiloh would rule and to him should be the obedience of the nations. They expected that this messianic kingdom, this messianic figure was going to draw not just Jews, but Gentiles, the nations to God. He was going to rule the world and bring salvation and redemption to the ends of the earth. And so what was important for us to consider here when we think through this question, it really has to do with the kingdom. Um, and, and how you fit the kingdom into the timeline of human history and God's uh, promises of redemption. And so the kingdom is central. I think what's more important for us is to discuss those two issues. Did Jesus bring the kingdom? Is that what he says? Is that what the New Testament um, writers taught, that he actually brought that kingdom, that it's a present reality, that he's actually on David's throne now? And then the question has to come next is what does the Bible promise about the effects of that kingdom where's it going to go uh what's going to be accomplished in this world and in this life and so that gets to i think an important distinction between amil and End ended there premillennialists um, are going to are, are, are saying that christ will bring that promised messianic kingdom and then rule for a literal thousand years on earth a literal thousand year earthly reign and the what where the premillennialists have a good point this is really important is they take seriously the clear earthly um, uh, um, uh, aspects of those kingdom promises from the Old Testament. And and they're right. Those are unavoidable. These promises of the Messiah's kingdom are not just spiritual promises up out there somewhere in some higher story. They're very much here. Like this kingdom of the Messiah is supposed to do things here on earth in this world. And so they're right about that. They take very seriously those promises um, from the Old Testament, uh, kingdom promises. Um, but what's interesting here is this is where you start to see a divergence between amillennialists and postmillennialists, is the amillennialists will tend to take those promises of the kingdom. They'll say that the New Testament teaches clearly that that kingdom of the Messiah has arrived. Jesus is seated. He is ruling on that Davidic throne Now, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's no way out of that. Jesus affirmed that. The apostles affirmed that. That's what the Bible teaches. So they're very right about that. But what they tend to do is they tend to spiritualize those promises that the kingdom uh, promises make throughout the Old Testament to the degree that they have no real earthly impact or, um, or fulfillment. It's, it becomes over-spiritualized. Now, what I think is beautiful about post-millennialism and I'll just, again, end this here, is that where the divergence is between postmill and mill where they over-spiritualize, and that's the common claim made to them. I know they would have disputes with that, and we should be willing to listen. But uh, where they tend to over-spiritualize, postmillennialism, I think, takes seriously both aspects. That this reign of Christ is current. It is a reality now. He's not waiting to take that throne, that messianic throne. He is ruling now, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and he must rule. Until, uh, until every enemy is, is, is placed under his feet as a footstool for his feet, and then death is defeated. So Christ is ruling as that messianic figure and king now, uh, but the postmillennialist takes very seriously these promises of Messiah's kingdom are not just heavenly spiritual out there promises. There's no way to avoid the fact that these promises are things that find the fulfillment here on earth, and wouldn't you know it? When Jesus mm-hmm. ascends in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that's so what he says. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been, past tense, given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of the nations, baptize them. And he says, teach them to obey. So I think postmillennialism takes uh, seriously both those aspects, pulls them together and can deal with all those issues in a consistent and coherent way. And so there's just a quick burst of, of pre-mill, on post-mill. That's
0: really helpful. Thanks. Uh, you've already used a lot of Scripture, um, uh, but if you could maybe just give us a, a few more or maybe just the, the primary text. If I could ask the question like this, what are maybe three or four of the primary texts of Scripture that really, really kind of were the nail in the coffin that, that persuaded you of the post-millennial position?
1: Oh, boy, brother, that's so tough because there's so many amazing uh, passages that are overwhelming. So I will start this by saying, um, that I was very, very committed to dispensational premillennialism. It's how I entered the Christian church. Um, I wasn't raised in a Christian home and so I entered the Christian church with my first Bible study actually being one of those old tribulation movies. That was the Bible study, watching the movie and discussing it. My favorite, uh, people to, to read and listen to on this were like Tim LaHaye and, uh, you know, everyone in that vein, Hal Lindsey. I think I never missed a a Sunday where he had his Hal Lindsey report and those sorts of things. So I was expecting the the, the rapture and uh, we're out of here anytime soon. That's that's where I I came from. And so I won't go into a long story here to to belabor the point, but I started questioning, seriously questioning what I was telling people about the future. I started feeling like when I was talking about things that I, I started feeling that sense of conviction, like you're saying something wrong kind of a thing. Like I was like, why am I? Feeling like that, talking about this. I went to Bible college. I learned some Bible college. Like, what's going on? And so, what I did is I committed to basically reading the scriptures with the blinders off, trying to examine my own traditions and just let the text speak. And so, what I started doing was reading the book of Revelation once a day, every day for 30 days. That's what I committed to do. And I think by day four is where I closed up the book and I said, um, I'm wrong. This, hmm. some of this stuff cannot be future. Um, and so, I started basically going to really examine this from the bottom up what i was saying about the kingdom the christ coming to establish this literal thir- uh, thousand year earthly kingdom on earth i started examining passages related to the kingdom so i'll tell you the first thing that started to challenge me um when jesus in the gospel according to matthew has the conflict um of course i was seeing the kingdom of heaven is in hand it's in hands you see you know all the talk like paul in book of acts like it ends with him talking to everyone about the kingdom of god uh, he, Christ is king of kings and lord of lords now he has all authority now in heaven and on earth he's reigning now uh, all that was starting to impact me but it was seeing Jesus in the same book that says he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom so there's something that's good news about that kingdom and he is being accused by the Jewish leadership of actually being in league with Satan and so they're basically argument is well of course he's casting out demons because he's 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 buddies with the devil like that's he's working with the devil it's easy to do when that's your partner sort of a thing and so what jesus does and this really challenged me he says if i cast out demons by the spirit of god then the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of god has come upon you and that challenged Mm -hmm. me because he did cast out demons by the spirit of god so the kingdom Mm -hmm. of god had come upon them And I was really struggling with that because I was always putting the the kingdom future. He's coming to bring that one day. Now, of course, I know, and I want to respond as graciously and as humbly as possible to my brothers who disagree. Of course, you'll have premillennialists who say it's now and not yet. Now, here's the point. We all say that now and not yet, because there's aspects to this that are now and not yet for all of us, whatever system you have. Mm -hmm. But what I discovered was as a premillennialist, what I was really saying about Christ is king now but not yet, because it's coming later, is I was really saying now, but not really. And that mm. really challenged me, um, because again, uh, for a post-millennialist, it, the kingdom is now, but we mean really now. He's really, really, really yeah. ruling and reigning now, like for real. That kingdom has arrived, and it's in progress, and it's not yet, because it's not finished yet. There's not a, there's not a climax to it yet. We're getting to that climax. It's a seed to a tree. It's leaven and a lump of dough sort of a thing. So that was the thing that started to really set me off as I was seeing the, the New Testament authors are clearly teaching that that kingdom has arrived, uh, that he's reigning now. They don't seem to have the perspective that I have. And then getting back mm-hmm. to those Old Testament passages, I'm beginning to read them and I'm like, wait a minute, the anticipation here about Messiah's kingdom is um, it's comprehensive and uh, it's, it's pretty specific in terms of the spiritual blessings and the earthly, uh, earthly blessings, what it should look like now. And so I started, you know, digging back and seeing like, well, wait, this isn't the very beginning. It's literally in the beginning. In the book of Genesis, you you see all these marks there, like the first, the promise to Abraham. Abraham will make you the father of many nations. And of course, to Abraham, the promise is is that he's going to have descendants as numerous as the stars and like the Mm -hmm. sand. And I'm thinking to myself. I'm kind of thinking, my perspective is like, you know, we lose in history. Christ comes back to sort of rescue all of this. You know, you're sort of thinking like, really, it's like the, the greater mass of humanity is going to be lost in this. But I mean, the description of the, of the Messiah's kingdom with that promise made to Abraham is it's going to be like the stars of heaven. That's a heck of a lot of stars. It's like the sand of the seashore. That's a lot. Right. And it seems like there's this dramatic, ginormous, amazing, victorious thing. And then you get to uh, Genesis forty nine ten. the promises that this, this one is coming, Shiloh, and to him shall be the obedience of the nations. Well, that's very much here. That's very much here. That very much involves the world and the nations are going to obey him. Now, I, mm-hmm. you start considering, you're putting these, these things together and you just the story just begins to develop and it's just you see this outgrowth of, expansion of what exactly is it going to look like and you then you have all the promises of salvation forgiveness redemption and then you get to promises of judgment as well on the covenant breaking jews so like there's these two aspects that sort of run together uh particularly you can see this in like malachi um and uh, chapter three and uh, of course the last chapter you see it in isaiah 65 Promise of salvation and redemption, sort of uh, sorry, salvation and judgment running together, salvation for the world, judgment on the covenant breakers. That became thematic. Luckily, mm-hmm. that's that's something to anticipate. And lo and behold, that's what you see in the gospels. But then when you if you ask for a couple of passages, I mean, there's so much. I mean, you know, one of my favorites began to re-examine it's the Christmas verse. It's on all the Christmas cards. I, I mention this a lot because this is something we're all familiar with, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. It promises that God is coming as a son and as a child. God himself, Yahweh, is coming. Mm-hmm. And it says into, and it says that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of mm-hmm. David, David to establish it with justice and with righteousness forevermore. And that sounds ginormous. Like that's what? Like of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. And on that's David's right. throne to establish with justice and righteousness, And then that seems like almost impossible. And then it says, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You see Daniel 7, 13 through 14. He's looking in the night visions. He sees one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. And it says he comes up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And it says to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Well, Jesus said that as he went up. Like as he ascended, mm-hmm. he said, he said that all authority there and here is mine. Mm-hmm. And he says, now go get the nations. But that's what Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says. That's what the promise mm-hmm. was to Abraham. You sort of see it's right. like, well, this is this is an overarching theme. The Messiah comes, brings salvation, judges the covenant breakers, and he brings the nations to God and he rules the mm-hmm. world. But then those promises actually are powerful i mean you can't miss them and that's one of the things again the premillennialists have right they take seriously the promises that god's law is a constituent element it's a constituent Mm -hmm. element of the messiah's kingdom and it very much affects this so for example isaiah chapter 2 you can read it later it says that god's going to draw the nations up to god's mountain and it says then the torah will go forth from zion that's that play, the center place of, of God's people. That Torah is going to go forth from God's people. These nations come up. They're being drawn up God's mountain. By the way, very important thing, water goes down hills. It doesn't go up. And so this is God drawing the nations up to his mountain. And uh, it says that the law goes forth from Zion. And then you move ahead again in Isaiah. Isaiah 9 says he's going to establish justice. And then you move ahead a little bit more in Isaiah, in Isaiah 42. And it says, of course, that this servant of the Lord is going to come and it says that he will establish justice on the earth and he will not grow faint or weary until he's done so. Where? Here. Mm -hmm. On the earth. And it says the coastlands are waiting for his Torah. And so that matches completely what you see in Christ's great commission. He has all the authority in heaven and earth. He says, go get the nations, baptize them and teach them to do what? Obey, which is. Oh, that, like, that is a summary of everything that you see in the Old Testament promises. And there's more. You can go to Isaiah. Of course, Continue it's just do, do the first 11 chapters of Isaiah and you'll see these themes. And of course, Isaiah 65, moving forward from there, you see that this kingdom of the Messiah is going to have blessings in this life, in this world, to the degree that you've got people living and dying in this kingdom. Now, if that's the eternal state, what are people doing living and dying in it? And what's the gospel being preached for in the eternal state? Because that's also in there. Um, and so that, you know, that, there's, a, there's a smattering of verses and sort of a start to this discussion. But I would, I would say that um, the promises of the kingdom and the Messiah in the Old Testament um, speak to spiritual realities and to this world realities and what you see in the new testament is that the new testament authors affirm over and over and over again that that messianic kingdom is a present reality and i think the best place to go If you want to see the timeline and summary of history, according to an inspired apostle, just let it speak for itself and literally get a piece of paper out and draw on a piece of paper, a timeline and and write through what Paul is saying here. He says that Christ is reigning now. So he's on that messianic throne and that he must reign until every enemy is placed as a footstool uh, 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 for his feet under his feet. And then it says the last enemy is death. And then it says that he then comes and he delivers the kingdom over to the father. So it's interesting there. Paul doesn't say that Jesus comes to bring the kingdom. He says that when he's finished ruling and everything's under his feet, and then he defeats death, then he's going to deliver the kingdom to the father. Like, look, it's done victorious. That is what you see in the Bible. And uh, that I find thoroughly and completely convincing. Uh, So -hmm. there's, there's a start.
0: That's yeah. That's a great start. Thank you so much. Uh, Lots of scripture. Uh, I think very convincing. Here's something that uh, I think was helpful for me, a text um, that, that's helped persuade me in this position. I find it very uh, persuasive. First, just to kind of play the devil's advocate against myself as I flesh out this thought. Some people might be listening and say, well, what about texts like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 uh, through, well, maybe 4 or 5, where it says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, and it continues. Uh, but the main idea is the last days. And speaking, you know, a lot of people would, would look at that and say, well, there, there's a time coming. We're not there yet. Or maybe we are. You know, There's some people in the pre-mill persuasion that, well, I think most people in the pre-mill persuasion that, that feel as though Jesus is going to come back in these days at this moment um, throughout church history. Uh, Most people have thought that, uh, well, many people have thought, especially if they've uh, held a pre-mill persuasion um, position, they've thought that Jesus was going to come back in their generation. But that last day's language, I think, is uh, really interesting, um, especially when when you link that with other texts. And I think a good one is Peter's sermon, uh, Acts chapter two, uh, at Pentecost, where he says, um, starting in verse 14, uh, but Peter standing with the 11, he lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all those who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine in the morning, the third hour of the day. Uh, But this was uttered through the prophet Joel." And he begins to preach uh, a prophecy that came from the prophet Joel. Verse 17, Acts 2, he says, "'And in the last days,' and it's the same kind of language, "'in the last days it shall be,' God declares, "'that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. "'Your sons and daughters will prophesy, Your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall all prophesy. And then he gets into judgment language. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. And so it's, this thing is going to happen, then judgment is going to come. And we're going to get to this in a minute, because I want to talk to you about um, preterism or partial preterism, the idea of the fall of Jerusalem, uh, the fall of the temple in AD 70 and a lot of that being prophesied about, but, but real briefly, the same kind of language is used in the last days. And then he describes Pentecost. He describes that the spirit of God is going to pour out on all flesh, sons, daughters, old men, young men, male servants, female servants. Um, this is going to happen in the last days. And, and what I find interesting, I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. What I find interesting is, is cessationists who are pre-male. And the reason why I find it interesting is those would be the first guys who would say, "Well, whoa, wait, 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 wait." You know, tongues, right? The the spirit falling. Your your old men will dream dreams. Young men see visions, and you know your your daughters and sons are going to prophesy. Um, that that time period, those last days, uh, were, we're speaking about the beginning of the church age, the apostolic era, and and those supernatural sign gifts of the holy spirit have ceased uh, at the end of the apostolic age not the end of the church age which we're still in but it ended at the end of the apostolic age Uh, they were signs precisely that a sign is something that points towards something else to give credibility to give validity to the message ultimately of the gospel of the person and work of jesus christ and so tongues Um, have ceased Uh, not all the gifts of the spirit have ceased we still have the gift of teaching and helps and administration lots of things like that encouragement um but but these sign gifts have ceased these supernatural gifts such as tongues or prophecy uh they've ceased and but i guess the kind of what what i want to hear your thoughts on it's funny to me that a cessationist would say the last days are behind us but then that same cessationist would be pre mill right Can, right. can you can you help me understand? Well yeah, no, I know, that's
1: good it's actually a really important it, it, an element of this entire discussion. When I said, you know it's 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 not good that this entire discussion is whittled down to the high, most highly symbolic book in the New Testament to this millennium, and the whole discussion goes there because there's so many more elements that need to be discussed in the midst of this, like to pin it down to that one spot and classify it all there. I think it should be a discussion between Christian optimism and Christian pessimism. Uh, So an optimistic Mm -hmm. view of the future and a pessimistic view of the future. Um, But this Mm -hmm. is important when you remember that I mentioned that you see two common things tied together when these promises in Messiah's kingdom are given in the old Testament. And that is salvation and judgment, salvation and judgment. You'll even see them right there in the same passage, Uh, salvation, cleansing, the Lord comes to his temple Uh, Malachi chapter three, you know, the Lord himself comes to his temple, which is amazing because Yahweh came to his temple. Jesus came to his own temple. And then there's supposed to be purification and judgment upon the covenant breakers. Covenant judgment Mm -hmm. is coming. Well, it's interesting here because in the book of Acts, Acts chapter two, Peter addresses the people in Jerusalem who have converged at this time in an amazing way. So the gospel goes out and then it goes boom across the empire. It's just so providential and powerful to see that take place. But the Spirit of God's poured out Pentecost, and then all of a sudden you see these amazing signs, right? You start seeing these amazing things. You're speaking in other people's languages, and you've got prophecy and all that stuff. And what the Apostle Peter says is he says, this, what you're seeing right now with all this, is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So you go back to Joel, and what's interesting here is that Joel actually says that these things are going to take place in the last days— and then what? You've got that dr- dramatic prophetic hyperbole that is so common in the Old Testament when God's bringing judgment. But the important thing to, to note here is this is in the context of Jerusalem. Jesus has told them that this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. These are the days of vengeance. Promises that your house is left to you desolate. Jesus says on the way to the cross to the women who are weeping for him, He says, Don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children talking Mm -hmm. to them because judgment was coming. Peter says this, what you're seeing, these signs is that, which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In other words, Peter's telling them, this is a sign of coming judgment. What you're watching right now, these signs are from God, affirming what I'm saying about the Messiah and that you're about to be judged. And that's
0: John the Baptist, the ax is laid to the root of the tree. It's it's imminent. It's about to happen.
1: we, We miss this too. When we read about the accusation coming against uh, coming against the first recorded martyr in the book of Acts what were they accusing these Christians of spreading what were they saying they say specifically that he says that this Jesus is coming back to destroy these customs Moses delivered to us mm-hmm. in other words he was speaking against the temple that this is all about to be destroyed y'all and it mm-hmm. also is interesting didn't you should we pay attention to the fact that in a really weird way this is strange the Christians living in Jerusalem at this time are selling all their property in Jerusalem. Why? Hmm. Why were they selling their property in Jerusalem? Why were these early Christians just giving up property and selling it because it yeah. wasn't good land to hold on to, considering the fact That's that Jesus told them the judge investment. was coming. But it is interesting that you you're making a point it's here, like regardless. Enron,
0: like That's having right. a bunch of Enron yeah, yeah. stock. You
1: know? yeah. yeah, they they yeah. had a they had a leg up in terms of like where the stock was going. Um, yeah, but yeah. it's interesting. Because we tend to hear the words last days um, or end of the age, and we're thinking in terms of, oh, that's the end of the world. But this language doesn't mean that. Uh, It doesn't have to mean that. It doesn't mean that. It's the last days of the Old Covenant, and this is an important point of this whole eschatological discussion. The Old Testament gives us two main parts of redemptive history. It gives us the Old Covenant age and then the promise of the coming new covenant in Messiah's kingdom. That's what's divided. It's not overly complicated in terms of like, what's the the spectrum here? What do we look for? It's the old covenant order and age, and there's a promise of Messiah's coming and a new covenant. And so the last days here, I would argue the last days of that old covenant age, the last days of the old covenant order, which by the way is what Jesus says in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse, where the Great Tribulation passage is, Jesus has just declared woes, Upon the covenant-breaking leadership of Jerusalem, he says your house is left you desolate. And then when he departs from there, interestingly, he takes the exact same path. As Yahweh's glory departed before the destruction of the first temple and then rested on the Mount of Olives, now Yahweh is in flesh. He's incarnate. He declares mm. woes. And then his glory departs and he rests on the Mount of Olives before the destruction wow. of the first temple. Yahweh did the same thing. And now wow. Jesus does that. And when he's talking to the disciples, they're kind of freaking out because he just told them the house is left in them desolate. So they're pointing out this amazing structure and this, the glory of the temple. And he says, do you see all these things? There shall not be left one stone upon another. And so he promises mm-hmm. his destruction. And what did they ask? When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? End of the end of the age they do not ask him about the end of the physical world they are asking him about the end of the age and jesus just told them that temple is about to be destroyed that whole order is going to be gone they know he's the messiah they know messiah brings the new covenant age all of that and so they associate the destruction with that old covenant order with the end of that age So the end of the age Mm -hmm. is not the end of the world. It's the end of the old covenant age and order. And you have here the last days, the last days of that old covenant age. Proof is that the context in Joel is judgment on the covenant breakers. It's about Mm -hmm. them. I mean, this stuff is local. This is one of the things that you ask questions like, well, what are the things that really piqued your curiosity or like, oh, that's powerful. Well, that I think is associated and this gets us into the preterism discussion. I'm not sure if you really want to go there deep yet, but it's important to note That in the, in say, just Matthew 24, all this is going on. Temple's going to be gone away. Here's all the things that are going to take place before you all die. All these things will take place in this generation using the near demonstrative, not that generation, but this generation. You, you, you talking to them, them, them. He tells them how they can escape it. So if this is Mm -hmm. cataclysmic, global, worldwide, earth shattering and ending judgment in the Great Tribulation, then how are they going to escape it on foot? By right. simply leaving Jerusalem. Because he tells right. them what to look for. When you see the abomination causes desolation, what the reader understands, spoken about prophet Daniel. Well, if you just read Luke, Luke actually interprets that. Luke 21 says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So whatever the abomination of desolation was, and there's lots of answers for this. Luke gives you the inspired interpretation. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee. Don't go back to get your coat. Don't, mm-hmm. You leave the city immediately and mm-hmm. flee. Well, it is interesting, too, Eusebius, uh, early uh, Christian, um, he records, and, and many of the early apologists use the destruction of Jerusalem to highlight the fact that Christ is vindicated. He is the Messiah. Well, Eusebius hmm. actually records, as a matter of historic record, that, um, that the early Christians in Jerusalem, when, when I'll, I'll, I'll fill in context here, when the Roman armies first came to Jerusalem and the Roman-Jewish war started, they surrounded the city. Stuff started falling apart in Rome. So they go to sack the city and then all of a sudden they leave. They turn around and go back. Now it's a matter of historic record that the Christians who were in Jerusalem at the time, because they had been giving warning from Jesus, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies flee, they then fled the city to a town called Pella. That's what Eusebius records. that Those Christians escaped the judgment on Jerusalem because they had a word from God vouchsafed for them. And so they escaped on foot, to Pella. Then all of a sudden the Roman armies turned back around and resacked the city. And of course we know what took place after that. So it is interesting. You tie all these things together in scripture. They knew they were talking about them. That's how the Christians interpreted it. They escaped the city. And and so this is not about the last days of human history, but the last days of that old covenant order. It was the end of Mm -hmm. the old covenant age.
0: Yeah, super helpful. Thank you. So we're already there talking about preterism and and the Olivet discourse, and I know that you know some people, even atheists, uh, people who are trying to disprove um, the teachings of Jesus and the validity of Scripture, would actually use um, texts like that. That you know, where Jesus says that all these things will come to pass uh, before this generation passes away. That some in this generation will not fall asleep; they will not pass away before these things. Uh, come to pass and people will use that and say see Jesus you know he's a false prophet Jesus his prediction his prophecy did not come true Um, that generation has been gone for 2,000 years give or take and you know and the end of the age hasn't come and so if you're understanding this you know the Olivet Discourse is Jesus kind of prophesying about the end of the world um, then uh, you know his his glorious return in the flesh then you're going to have some problems and so uh, with the Olivet Discourse, um, I, I like, you know, some of Sproul's teachings, um, you know, the the end times according to Jesus. Um, and you're already kind of talking about it. So could you just give us a precise uh, definition of preterism and why, why that's um, essential uh, in understanding the post-mill position?
1: Yeah, it, it, you know, there are amillennial preterists as well. So you, you tend to find the the preterists. Uh, now I'd say orthodox preterist historic preterist because preterism is something you see throughout the history of the church i would say eusebius an example from him when he points to matthew 24 as vindication of christ as messiah that the christians actually escaped because they listened to christ um, in the Mm -hmm. olivet discourse he has a preterist interpretation of that passage and so preterist is just a word that means past in fulfillment and so what we would say in terms of preterism again orthodox biblical historic preterism is that when you look at some of these passages um, uh, and we would say, well, that's past. That's already been fulfilled. That was for them. It happened. Mm -hmm. It vindicates Christ as Messiah. It shows that scripture. God keeps his promises. These things he says are going to happen and they happen on time and as planned. And so preterism is that uh, belief that, say, the Olivet Discourse and those things that are consistent with that or in that same vein or story, they're past in fulfillment. Those are already done. I would say the Olivet Discourse is not... Uh, in terms of the great tribulation promise, um, in our future, uh, it was pertaining to them. Again, Jesus Mm -hmm. said it to them. He wraps up that discourse about the great tribulation saying all these things will be upon this generation, the near demonstrative that generation. That's how they obviously saw it and interpreted it. You can see that throughout uh, church history, um, but that's essentially preterism, past in fulfillment. Um, we still have many promises. This is important. We still have many, many, many promises that are uh, both present and future to us. There's, we're still waiting for that climax. There's, there's still much more to do and to come. Uh, but in rela- relation to those like the Olivet Discourse, the Great Tribulation, that's past. It's not a futurist mm-hmm. perspective. In other words, it's coming uh, maybe any day now or in, in the future. It's past in fulfillment. Um, and so that's essentially preterism, uh, the preterist perspective. Yeah. And there's giants of the faith in, in Christian history that, were, that are preterists, um, uh, many, many, many giants of the faith who are preterists in their understanding of some of these passages. And of course, there's giants of the faith on all sides. But in terms of mm-hmm. uh, an historic Christian position uh, based upon exegesis, uh, that's uh, what many Christians have held to. And preterism just means past in fulfillment.
0: Cool. Thanks. So since you're talking about Giants in the Faith, that's another place I wanted to go just to give people a perspective because some people are probably new um, to this position. I know that I'm relatively new to this position as well, the post-mill eschatology. And um, sometimes, you know, people get, you know, they just get a little nervous. They get a little gun-shy about something that's new, um, especially if they're not familiar with anybody else who's credible, who holds to the position. Now, we've got you. I think you have some credibility. But for, you know, our listeners who say, Jeff Durbin's not enough. Um, who Who are some guys throughout giants in history, but then also some present day guys names that that people might recognize that would would hold a post mill position?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I'll just say this before I start the answer to that question: that um, I started to think that I was becoming a heretic uh, when I started just saying I'm going to let the Bible speak and I'm going to let it challenge right. me wherever it's wherever it's going to challenge me. I'll lay aside what I've been taught, my traditions. I started seeing these things, and I was going. That seems like that had to have happened already, you know, or right. uh, this seems like that has to be what the future looks like. And I started kind of freaking out, uh, thinking, is this how heretics are born? They start seeing things right. in scripture no one's seen before. Well,
0: because you are the odd man out. And the reason, i, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the reason why that is the pre position, a lot of it does come. I know there's a historic position, but a lot of the pre that we're familiar with in America and this generation comes out of a dispensational framework. And a big part of that was because... About 70 plus years ago, something you know pretty significant happened, namely Israel became a sovereign nation. And so anybody who is reading through the lens of kind of like two tracks, Israel and Gentiles and kind of a dispensational hermeneutic kind of chopping up the Bible, they see Israel getting land and becoming a sovereign nation and they get real excited and then boom, you've got, you know, left behind movie TV series and all these kind of things. So pretty much every single... What I'm saying is that pretty much every single American Christian, I'd say over 90%, if you were raised in the American evangelical church, you were probably, uh, you were probably like a fish who's swimming through water and passes another fish. And you know, the fish says, hey, the water feels nice today. And the, and the fish says, what's water? Right? That's, like, that's kind of the pre-mill persuasion. It's, like you just, it's assumed. You, know, you were just kind of raised assuming it. And so to go towards any other position, you would feel like a heretic. So back, back to you.
1: Yeah, no. And, and, and you know, and, and just on that point, dispensational premillennialism, the popular behind series, all that stuff, the secret rapture, seven years of tribulation, all that stuff. That's the novelty in history. That's mm-hmm. important, right? That this, this popularized perspective today is the novelty in history. Right. Um, and that, that's something that really rocked me when I discovered, oh, wait, what I have adopted and was taught is the novelty in history. Mm-hmm. It's not the historic position. Um, It's that mm-hmm. it, nobody had thought this up uh, or, or or taught on this, and that really that really rocked me in a big way. But I mean, I I did. I, I'm starting to say I'll, I'll let the text speak, and I'm going, oh my goodness, I'm this seems like it had to have already happened, and I'm getting I'm getting troubled now by it. And so I ha- I remembered that I had I had seen like a year before I was in Borders Books and Music. I used to go there. Just I was like a fixture there, and um, I I remember seeing a book from R.C. Sproul, and I knew who he was, and um, I I hadn't read a lot of him yet, but I, I knew he was a, he was a respected theologian. I had seen his book, The Last Days According to Jesus, and I was a big eschatology nut, and so I was I picked it up, but I hadn't been where I was then. I I, I wasn't there. I was like the Disby, the Disp premill rapture any moment, and I remember. Looking through this book, The Last Days of According to Jesus, I thought to myself, this is like gibberish to me. It was like foreign, cons- I, I don't know what in the world this man is talking about. Because I, w- I, I wasn't in it yet. And so, uh, I remember I put it back like, well, I guess everyone's nutty somewhere in their theology. And that's where I put it. Now, when started th- I started, I start going, wait a minute, hold on a second. What was R.C. Sproul saying? So, I, w- I drove all the way to Borders. I- and the book was still there. <laughs> apparently not very popular. And there was just one. I picked it up and I start reading Dr. Sproul work through the Olivet Discourse. And I, all of a sudden, this big weight, oh, oh, many Christians have thought this in history. Oh, mm. Dr. R.C. Sproul believes this too. Okay, so I'm not a heretic. Okay, all right. Mm. And so I start realizing there's, there's we don't know a lot about church history and modern evangelicalism and, and where we've come from, what people have believed. So the yeah. first thing I'll say when you say like, well, who else in history held the post-millennialism? I would say Abraham. Uh, David, Jesus, Paul, (laughs) of course, we all want to believe that. But, you know, I say that, you know, rather tongue in cheek, (laughs) but I I do believe it. I mean, but um, of course, that's where we we want our belief and where this comes from to be based upon sola scriptura the scriptures mm-hmm. teach this, the ancient record of the church right. teaches this, that's the scriptures. And so that's where we're gonna go first and foremost. The next thing is you move through history. You can see it, of course, statements here and there, um, but Athanasius, uh, we call Athanasius the patron patron saint of post-millennialism. Uh, he, would, he would fall into the category of post-millennialism um, and the victory of the kingdom and history and all that. And praise god for athanasius because if not for him and god's providence in him uh we'd all be arians today uh so mm-hmm. praise god for athanasius and he happened to be a post-millennialist but you also i mean there's so many um you can look at uh, jonathan edwards jonathan edwards was a post-millennialist um the puritans were post-millennialists uh i will say this, this is a very important thing to say i think it's important to highlight this that the nation that we're in right now the united states of america when the colonies started and people were coming over, the Huguenots, the Pilgrims, the Puritans—all of them—postmillennialism. Uh, that was it. I mean, the Geneva mm-hmm. Study Bible was the popular study Bible in America before uh, the 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 one that came in the 19th century that brought to us dispensational premillennialism. Um, and post post-millennial, postmillennialism was in the atmosphere. I mean, it, it was in their blood. And uh, so I would say this, uh, like Doug says. Uh, uh, the Puritans were post-millennial, and that's good enough for me. Edwards was post-millennialism, post-millennial, post-millennial, and so that's good enough for me. Um, and so we have giants of the faith in history that are post-millennial, post-millennialists. Sorry, it's been a long day. A lot of pastoral. Yeah, sorry. Work, a lot of talking. No uh, and the Very next, helpful. The more modern, uh, you would say, you'd point to, I mean, there's so many. But, you know, some favorites are like R.J. Rush Dooney um, was a post-millennialist. Uh, Dr. Greg Bonson was a post millennialist, and that should seal the deal for most of us. Um, uh, Gary Demar um, is a post millennialist. Um, RC Sproul um, and Doctor James White. <laughs> <He is> now. <laughs> I, have, post- I have
0: to believe that you you had something to do with that. But uh, uh, I, you know, so it's funny. well done.
1: No, I got to. I'll, I'll share something I don't think I've shared publicly before, and so this will be a first for everybody. So enjoy this. Um, it's interesting because. Dr. White and I have known each other for a long time. He is my hero of the faith. He's my spiritual father in the faith. He is my mentor. He's, he's, I, I, I'm, I stand on his shoulders in many ways. But our conversations about eschatology and these sorts of things, they've been sort of scattered. Like it'll be sort of a, a question while we're having lunch together. So we'll go out, we'll have lunch together, you know, and he'll just ask us a question. Wait, well, you know, can you explain this to me? Like, why, why this, and what do you, what would you say to this? It'll be like a quick response, and you know, and then all of a sudden, okay, back, back to the quesadilla, like you know, whatever. It's just sort of, right. it's been like that. And then, of course, Pastor James and I have worked closely together in ministry for many years. And then now he's an elder at Apologia Church. But what's, what's amazing to me is, um, is there, there have been times where I thought to myself, am I being too repetitive, like? everyone's got this now, right? Like I'm pounding it in. I keep, I keep referring to these things. I just keep pounding it in. And I've thought to myself, maybe I mean too, too repetitive. Like they got it. I should probably, you know, stop mentioning that because they understand that completely. Um, But it's amazing because pastor James has been on this, this, this path. And when he investigates something, he investigates it thoroughly. Uh, all the argumentation against, and he wants to make sure he has every detail and he's being faithful with the text. He wants to know, does the text say that? Does the text say that clearly? Do you draw that out of the text? I mean, trust me, everyone, that's how the man is. It it better come from the text and it better be consistent. Um, And it's amazing because I've been in a place where as a pastor, I'm like, am I saying this too much? Have I driven it in? And then it's amazing. It was fairly recently, James has been in this for years now in terms of study, Uh, fairly recently I was, what was I preaching on? Oh man, I forget what it was. I was preaching on, Oh, the overview of Matthew. I was getting everyone back into Matthew again and doing like, how should we, how do we need to read Matthew rightly? And, um, I mentioned that Matthew quotes from Isaiah and I, I go to the passage that I've been in a thousand times and, Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was amazing because James told me after service, like, forgive me for checking out. Look, when you mentioned that passage, I went to go look it up. And I spent the rest of the time just looking at the passage. And he was like, did you know that Isaiah 42 says that, like, he starts saying this is a process? Like, Isaiah, he will establish justice. He won't grow faint or weary until he's done so. That that's a process? Like, the Messiah is going to establish justice in the earth and it's a that's a process. It has to be a process, but it but it's gonna happen. And I'm thinking to myself, I've been saying that like <laughs> every Sunday for the last 10 years of my life. Not exactly, mm-hmm. but you know, it's one of those things where I was like, I've saying that all the time, but it was amazing because that that's where the light bulb came on. Then all of a right. sudden, like Pastor James was tying all these things together. He's like, But that's it also says it over there. And it also says it over mm-hmm. there, and it also says it over yeah. there. And that's a consistent theme. So that was what James said, is like for him. It wasn't all the questions cause we all have questions. This is a, this is an amazing revelation from God. We're fallible creatures. I mean, we don't have this thing tapped um, for, it's not a question of like the, the incidental things or things here or there. Like, well, how do you interpret that single passage with that one line there? How does that fit in eschatology? For James, his point was, this is like overarching theme Like from beginning to end of the Bible, it's overarching theme, Messiah's kingdom, establishing justice. It's a process. It's not coming like the 82nd Airborne. It's not going to drop on history. It's mustard seed to tree. Like this is something that it increases in peace and governance. And so that's that's what really got Pastor James is as he was examining those texts and really trying to exegete them and pull them together. He was like, wait a minute, this is completely thematic. It's overarching and it's consistent, it's everywhere, Mm -hmm. that's the story. So James's point is like, whatever else you do with the other little questions and eschatology and details, um, like who's the beast of revelation, who's the harlot, all that stuff, you can't mess with the overarching theme. It's consistent, Mm -hmm. it's everywhere. And so Pastor James is officially post-mill, so praise God for that. Mm Cool.
0: Well, I think that that really brings us to a great way to close. You know, talking about it's a process. It's a process, and I guess one of the things that uh, I I want our listeners to be aware of is um, when you look at a process and you look at a global process, you look at something that's cosmic, um, God's plan for the world, for the cosmos. Um, it's just it's just a lot bigger than us, and so I think sometimes people look at it. You know, they look at what's going on. They look at cancel culture. They look at Biden, you know, and, and Harris and and the White House, or they look at, um, the Equality Act or they, you know, the different, different things, the transgender movement, you know, social justice, critical race theory, entering into schools. And they look at these things and they say, man, that seems to fit the pre-meal We're shining, you know, just kind of, you know, shining brass on a sinking ship. Uh, Things are going to get worse and worse and worse, but we're going to win in the very end because Jesus is our pinch hitter and he's going to come in and, you know, and he's going to win the game for us. He's going to take over, you know? And, um, but, but I think part of the reason is because we just, we're so self-centered, you know, and we think in such small ways and we often just think about ourselves. And, and so I, I think it's, it's kind of like, you know, like a team can win a game. Um, but an individual player have the worst game of his life. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you know, like as an individual player, I might have a bad game. Um, but the team still wins and, you know, just like stock prices, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's dips and spikes, you know, but gradually, uh, going up. And so I, I think it's good for us just to remember that, um, I thank God for our nation. I thank God for America. I think it was, you know, I, I know it was founded on, uh, Christian principles and that's why we have things like freedom of speech and we have the thoughts, you know, and, and the, the writings of guys like John Locke and the founders and, um, Adams and all these kinds of things. And so I'm grateful for that. But at the end of the day, um, Christ and his, His eternal plan his kingdom it's not it's not contingent on any one individual it's not contingent on any one nation um and and the idea that we might um be having a rough spell or we might be you know the the fact that the other team scores a point doesn't mean hey well i guess i guess we just quit and throw in the towel you know it's 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 not promised to be a shutout the other team their darkness will darkness has its moments from time to time and it'll get a couple points on the board from time to time but it's it's slow, it's that mustard seed that you were talking about. You know, it's the leaven. Um, I remember one of my friends, he said, you know, that the kingdom of God, it starts small, it grows slowly, and it becomes significant. Small, slow, but then significant. And it's just, it takes time. And and honestly, a lot of it is just has to do with your perspective. Like, am I thinking long-term? Am I thinking bigger than myself? Uh, but also, am I am I trying my best to have the mind of Christ? Am I trying to think in terms of what God might doing be doing because I, I look at uh, you know a lot of things recently happening even with the Evangelical church and a lot of people talk it up to a loss but I, there's many ways that you know I'm saddened and grieved but there's many ways that I'm grateful uh, yeah. I think you know because because I feel like there's been a winnowing there's been a pruning um, I, that you know I, I just finished reading uh, vody Baham's book fault lines you know and I thought it was really helpful and and I and I'm grateful that like for the, for the first time in a while I can like I, I can actually it's like, like there was like this God in his providence made it like a mandatory, you know, rule where we all had to put on our jerseys and we could tell for the first time who was actually on our team, Yeah, you know, we could tell like, like, yeah. and that, I mean, that's a great grace to it the is. nation. It's a great grace to the church. It's a great grace to me to, for the, like, finally to be able to say, oh, okay. I thought, I thought there was something there, you know, it, it smelled fishy and felt funny, you know, like. And so it just, it depends on your perspective. Am am I thinking outside of myself? Am I thinking outside of even our nation? Am I thinking 10,000 years from now? And because Christ could tarry for 10,000, 40,000, like you've said, we might be in the infant stages, still the church, you know, am I thinking big? Am I thinking long, small, slow, significant? But then also am I thinking through the perspective and the mind of God as best I can from his word and, and and seeing that even in the midst of difficulty and trial, all the graces that he's affording to us that, that accomplish his will. I mean, the fact that like liberalism has kind of just had a heyday these past few years, and I, I know it's been longer and secular, but the fact that it's really showing its head, man, I look at that and I think, all right, maybe America's done. That doesn't mean anything in terms of the post-mill position being wrong. But America is just, that, that's just, that's a, that's a few points that I don't want us to lose. But so that's one perspective. But then my perspective is, uh, man, finally, the enemy has reared its ugly head and, and and just said, this is how ugly I actually am. You know how I've been sweet and nice for a long time and polite. And this is how bad I really am. I I want to, I want to take your children away from you. I want to, uh, I want to, you know, do vaccine passports and I I want to, you know, monitor you with this and do like. And I'm sitting back and I'm like, yeah, this is scary. At the same time, like, thank goodness. Cause I felt like, like one of the hardest things to do as a pastor was convince people that there was an enemy to convince people that there was darkness, that, that there actually was something like persecution, you know, that there actually was. And now it's like, you know, and so I see like, all right, there's a lot of people who aren't really on our team and that's a bummer. Um, But then at the same time, it's like, like the, the people who are left are awake and, and, and a hundred people who are awake and roused and ready to fight, um, are a lot better than 500, you know, that are all taking a nap. And so I feel like the church in America and I those ratios aren't specific, but my point is just to say, I think, I think the church in America is waking up and, and yes, in waking up out of our slumber, we're realizing that the church in America isn't as large as we thought it was, you know, the SBC boast of, 15 million people, but you're never going to find them in the pews, much less, you know, like, and that's just church attendance. You won't even find that many with church attendance, much less, you know, people who are really, really, um, committed to Christ and, and his word. But the point is there are still lots of Christians who love Jesus, love his word, recognize false doctrine, have a spine, are willing to stand against these things. And, and I'm sure you've experienced this, but it just seems like, like, um, those inquiries and, and, uh, are, they're, they're flooding in people, you know, kind of almost like the resurgence that happened with Calvinism. It's like now that same kind of, maybe not to that level, but it seems like there is another resurgence now, but, but with, um, with Kuyperianism, with, with post-millennialism, with engaging culture, uh, like Christians actually caring about politics for the first time in in their lives and, and wanting yeah. to, uh, take a stand and wanting to, to, to win the culture. And so, all that being said, I feel encouraged, and that kind of gets us to our bonus question. So I'm, I'm going to conclude the episode.
1: Well, I'm going to say. Go ahead.
0: One, go one, ahead. One, hopefully, yeah, one, yeah. Two,
1: that uh, that's uh, so beautifully stated, brother. And I think what's important people recognize is that there's a lot of, of course, uh, mischaracterization coming across everyone's bow in terms of talking about somebody else else's position. It's just. It's a human problem. We all have that problem. We mischaracterize. We need to avoid doing that. Christians have to have the kind of integrity that doesn't allow that sort of a thing in others or in ourselves. Um, But people will mischaracterize postmillennialism in terms of like, wait, I'm looking for the utopia. This does not look like a utopia. Apparently, postmillennialism is wrong. Postmillennialists recognize that Christ's kingdom grows in history through the proclamation of the gospel, and it grows gradually. And we recognize historical judgments. God may judge a people for uh, sinning against God as a nation. He's done it throughout history. He'll continue to do it now. But we recognize that the Bible teaches that the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ church. Christ church is the offensive force in history. Uh, gates aren't coming against the church. We are taking them down and none of them are gonna prevail against the church. That's a promise from Jesus. In Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he of course references a very popular Old Testament Psalm when he says the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, that's a promise it's not the unbelievers it's not the unrighteous that inherit this place it's the meek that inherit the earth Mm -hmm. think about that it's not the unrighteous who inherit this place it's us but also the promise is the inspired apostle interprets a promise to abraham in romans chapter 4 paul says abraham's descendants would inherit the world so this world belongs to Jesus. It's God's world. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's the meek that inherit the earth. It's not the ungodly. It's God's descendants who inherit the world. And so that's where history is going. And you're right. There's going to be moments of historical judgment and difficulties. But I do want to say this. Some of the attacks on post-millennialism I find amusing and um, somewhat humorous. When someone looks around and says, well, it doesn't really look like that to me now. I'd say, well, let's look at those scriptures and see what those promises really are. But you're saying that as a 21st century um, American evangelical with access to the entire globe in your pocket. 24 hours a day you could do a video and preach the gospel to someone someone in zimbabwe or in new zealand live globally instantly uh we've got uh in the last 150 years i believe it is more uh christian converts than an entire history of the church um we've got more professing christians on earth today than any time in history um we have more access now to bring the gospel to different nations now uh, than we ever did in history. Uh, China, people are looking at studies and saying China could be the uh, most Christian nation uh, very soon in, in uh, our history uh, or in, in, in the future. And so when you think about where we're at today, we started with some very confused disciples before Jesus at his ascension. Very, very confused, sort of like, okay, go win the world. This recently crucified Palestinian Jew who is now raised from the dead says that he's the one who's in charge of the entire world. I think Caesar would have had something to say about that, but that's what Jesus told him. So he says, so on that basis, because it's all mine, it's not Caesar's, it's not that guy over there because it's mine, because this world is mine, heaven and earth, all my authority, go get the nations. He told that to some confused disciples there before he ascended a small handful and now we've got believers all over the planet and you and I talking to each other. Where are you at now? Texas. You're in Texas right mm-hmm. now. I'm in Arizona talking to each other live, talking about spiritual things. God's word. Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What, what, what are we losing again?
0: <laughs> right.
1: You know, right. Yeah, we went all-
0: from 11 confused disciples to millions, if not a couple billion, perhaps yeah. Christians in the world. It, it feels like a win and i think yeah. you know, the, the primo person i would want to push back on you know and it well in their defense actually they, they would say well hey we're, we're not in our position we're not saying that there's going to be less christians jeff you know like we're, we we think that christians will grow and i think this is the big problem they they would have this persuasion that, that yeah the the ranks of christians will expand and increase we're going to go from thousands and then maybe millions and this and we're going to have more and more christians but the world is going to get worse and worse and i think that's what i struggle with i'm just right. so then what do christians do right if if because to me it's it's just more christians equals better world mm-hmm. period gospel um, changes
1: the gospel changes things
0: and that's why i think the pre position and maybe maybe it's not the historical but maybe it's like what you're saying this kind of this novelty that's new really in, in just the last century or so, this dispensational primo position. That's why I think it almost always coincides, even if people, if it's subconscious with two kingdom theology, because that's the only way that you can grow in ranks of Christians. We're going to go from thousands to tens of thousands to millions of more and more Christians, but the world is going to get worse and worse and worse. How, how can you, I mean, I feel like you have to work to achieve that. Like you would have to be intentional to. To exponentially grow in the in not just numbers because the the population may be growing as well the world but but in terms of percentages the percentages of of Christians in the world increasing and yet the world getting worse I feel like that has to be that has to be designed and and I think it has been designed I think it's too keen kingdom theology and so that being said I I wanted I wanted to well I'll give I'll give you the final word but I I wanted to ask that as our our bonus question because I think it's Significant, um, but no, did is. you want to say something?
1: Yeah, just quickly, I'll say because I know we're running out of time here. But cultural decay is an is an important thing to to talk about. When you talk about pessimism, uh, you know, uh, opt uh, optimillennialism versus pessimillennialism, uh, an optimistic view of the future versus a pessimistic view of the future. You know, cultural decay is is an aspect we've we've got to contend with. The postmillennialist says that Christ rules and reigns now. He is bringing his crown rights all over the world through his bride, through the proclamation of the gospel. When, when we preach the gospel, make disciples, and teach them to obey, the world changes. Uh, we take very seriously Jesus saying, You're the salt of the earth, you're the light. You know, that, that means something like cultural decay should matter to Christians because when we win people to Christ, we say they're a disciple of Christ, they're regenerate. All of a sudden, now they love God's law. Now, what, do you, what happens if you go into a nation? You preach the gospel to the nation, they come to Christ, they come into submission to Jesus, their hearts are changed, and they love God's law. What happens? Does that nation look different than a pagan nation? Yes. I hope yes. it does. I really hope it does. So people talk about, like, you think we should be about, you know, cultural transformation? Well, to the extent that we're talking about the fact that the external, the worship of the people looks different when they come to Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Right. Like if I, Because we they... should
0: be about discipleship and discipleship. Jesus, fortunately for us, was gracious enough to define it for us. It looks like baptizing the nations into the triune, the name of the triune God and teaching them to obey all of Christ's commands. So if that's discipleship. Right. So it's not that it's not like we are first and foremost about cultural engagement and cultural transformation. We're first and foremost about discipleship. Yeah. Uh, but discipleship includes teaching people to obey. And, and so then it really just becomes a matter of, do you think that this Great Commission is going to be successful? Is it viable? Will it work? And if you believe that that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell, that hell is on the defense, the church is the weapon of Christ that's pushing the battering ram, that's that's ramming up against the gates of hell, and they're not going to be able to stand. So if you think that the, the Great Commission is our strategy and, and the conclusion is that this strategy of Christ will work, um, then then what 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 are people going to do we're not, we're not all i mean it's great to work quietly with your hands we have texts like that you know but some people are going to be in politics some people are going to be in media some people are going to you know be in hollywood some people and as 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 more and more people come to saving faith in jesus and discipleship doesn't just include conversions and baptisms but obedience to god's law then that the, the culture has to transform it has to and if culture. and if the culture doesn't transform then the great com- it's not that oh well that's because you know we're doing the Great Commission, but you know things are just... Getting... No, you're not doing the Great Commission. Doing the Great Commission means cultural transformation because the Great Commission involves teaching all men to obey the law of Christ. And the law of Christ has implications for every single sphere of human life. It, the law of Christ isn't something we obey just at church or just at home or in our marriage. Jesus has more to say in his law than just how husbands should treat their wives or how parents should spank their kids jesus has things to say about how government should function and how art should be and how the marketplace should be and vocation and so it's it's just i don't know it's silly.
1: yeah and 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 just to to summarize i think the thought is that culture is religion externalized or worship externalized
0: i like that that's good
1: if if um a nation is converted to christ then the worship of that nation looks different the culture looks like something so it's religion externalized or worship externalized and we're seeing that now the religion of our nation the worship of our nation isn't under the triune god and towards christ it's to some other god it's to some foreign god or gods and so it looks the way that it does now because it's a worship of a different god it's religion externalized yes atheists are very religious um, and uh, the, uh, there's no there's no escaping that, and so culture is religion externalized or worship externalized, and so yeah, if 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 sanctification is a thing, then it changes culture, and that's that's the key issue there. I think that's the that's the main point to talk through is do you believe that sanctification is a thing that it's real that it's accomplished mm-hmm. by God, um, and if someone says yeah, I believe God really changes hearts, so He actually does something in the person, He doesn't just punch their ticket and, and nothing happens. Well, if you believe that sanctification's a thing and Jesus tells us to win the nations, then isn't the world going to look different? Right. And because sanctification is a real thing, doesn't God say in Ezekiel 36 that he's going to take out a heart of stone, give a heart of flesh. That he's going to put a spirit within people and cause them to observe his statutes. By the way, which statutes mm. was Ezekiel talking about? The known statutes, the known law. Um, mm. so that's a key, key element here, but yeah, I'll just say briefly and gives point everyone to at least a resource, go to Dr. Joseph boot. Um, uh, to find Dr. Jo- Joseph's boots books on, uh, two kingdom, uh, theology, uh, the at least the modern expression of it. Um, because that has an impact as well amongst a lot of reform folks. Uh, John mm-hmm. frames written on this as well. Uh, I think it's, uh, something the Escondido theology, the
0: Escondido theology. Yeah. That's yes, helpful. Uh, yeah.
1: Frame, it's a good, It's an excellent book, but it's, it's essentially, it's a, it's a uh, it's, a, it's a sharp divide between the spiritual higher story and then this earthly realm and kingdom, which really mm-hmm. doesn't, Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned with, with modern day two kingdom uh, perspective. Um, mm-hmm. And so all of this can, can go away because this is not really the concern of Jesus. This happening here and now, this, this is not really the concern of Christ. He's concerned with that very different story up there, that spiritual kingdom. The church is plagued with dualism today. Uh, The church is plagued with uh, hints of Gnostic thought uh, in different aspects, uh, and that impacts how the church does or doesn't um, engage with the world around us. Uh, I think you're right when you talk about dispensationalism having a massive impact on uh, the impotence of the church in in, uh, our day. Uh, If you tell people, you know, our victory is getting out of here, and this is all just going to get worse anyway, so don't bother. Then they'll live accordingly. So. Act
0: like that. That's right.
1: Tell Christians that they're going to live accordingly. If you tell them like oh, none of that matters, we're just going to get out of here, and that's the real glory. This is all going to hell anyways. Then they're going to live like it's true. They'll raise their kids like that's true. They'll think about their grandkids mm-hmm. like that's true. Um, and so those things have had a devastating impact on the witness of the church and the culture. And I think we should get back to what the Puritans thought about Christ's kingdom and His rule.
0: Amen. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show. This is real quick, our our bonus question. If you're not one of our club members, we call them our responders. We encourage you to become one. Our ministry can't function without your prayers, uh, without your support. And so if you haven't done that before, uh, go ahead and subscribe, become one of our responders. You'll get access to our bonus content. And this is a piece of that. So here's our bonus question for Jeff. It's this. I personally believe that one of the chief reasons for why the church has seemingly lost ground over recent decades in fighting the culture war is primarily due to three specific doctrines. This is what we've been talking about. I'm going to give them just a couple more minutes to address it. Dispensationalism, premillennialism, and 2 kingdom theology. Do you agree that these doctrines have had a negative impact on the church and its engagement with the culture? And what do you think, I'll ask it like this, what do you think the solution is? So that's our bonus question. That concludes our episode. And Jeff's going to stay on for just, I won't speak, Jeff. I'll give you the floor, just a couple more minutes to answer that question. Thanks for tuning in. All right, hold up. You're not going to want to miss this. I'm going to tell you exactly how our spring 2024 conference is going to go down. Here's the title of the conference, Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. Subtitle, Seven Doctrines for Ruling the World. We're going to have seven primary sessions covering each of these doctrines for ruling the world righteously. Number one, Reformed Confessionalism. That's going to be Pastor Doug Wilson preaching on that topic. Then we've got Covenant Theology with Pastor Brian Sovey. Then we've got Biblical Patriarchy with Pastor Michael Foster. Then we've got Presuppositionalism with Dr. Joseph Boot. Then we've got um, Kyperianism, All of Christ for All of Life, where we're going to welcome Pastor Doug Wilson back for a second session. Then we've got General Equity Theonomy. We're going to have Dr. Joseph Boot come and do a second session on that topic. And then lastly, we'll have Pastor Dale Partridge on Post-Millennial Eschatology In in addition to these seven sessions, we're also going to have not one, but two live podcasts. On the first day of the conference, that's Friday, March 1st, we're going to have a live Theology Applied podcast I'll be on the stage hosting the discussion with Douglas Wilson, Michael Foster, and Eric Kahn from It's Good to Be a Man. The topic is going to be all about biblical patriarchy. We're going to specifically be parsing out, distinguishing the biblical doctrinal differences between patriarchy and complementarianism. Again, that's Friday, March 1st, the first day of the conference, a live Theology Applied podcast. On biblical patriarchy. Then we're going to have the next day, that's Saturday, March 2nd, a live Haunted Cosmos podcast. I'll be hosting this discussion with Brian Sauvey and Ben Garrett. We're going to be talking about the Nephilim. We're going to be talking about the Watchers. We're going to be talking about what creatures currently are living underneath the surface of the earth and chasms of the deep. It's going to be wacky. It's going to be weird, but it will also be thoroughly biblical and incredibly unhinged. So you're not going to want to miss these two live podcasts, Theology Applied, on Friday, March 1st, the first day of the conference. On Biblical Patriarchy with Doug Wilson, Michael Foster, Eric Kahn, and myself. And then the next day of the conference, Saturday, March 2nd, a live Haunted Cosmos podcast with Brian Sauvé and Ben Garrett and myself on the Nephilim, the Watchers, and What Lies Under uh, the Surface of the Earth. And then the conference will hold over for one final, the third and final day. That's going to be the Lord's Day, Sunday, March 3rd, where one of our speakers will be holding over to preach the Lord's Day sermon. And I'll be leading us in worship through the liturgy. So we've got 3 days, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, March 1st, 2nd and 3rd of 2024 blueprints for Christendom 2.0, seven doctrines for ruling the world. You're not gonna wanna miss this conference. Our early bird rate is still available, but only for a very short period of time. We are ending the early bird rate on August 31st at 11.59 p.m. That will be the final chance to get into this conference at an affordable, cheap rate, all right? So go and take advantage of the early bird rate right now by going to Conference dot com. Again, that's rightresponseconference.com to register for Blueprints for Christendom 2.0, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 2024. Register today.